You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, Episode 30, for November 30th, 2008. Warning. This episode contains mature themes, violence, and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the Metamore City Podcast. I am your host, Chris Lester, and it is my pleasure to bring you this, the 30th episode of the show. To everyone who's joined me for this ride, thank you for your support. Your emails, voicemails, and reviews have kept me going and made me believe that these stories are worth sharing with the world. For that, I'm thankful to each and every one of you. I want to take a minute here to correct an oversight from the last few episodes. I've been so busy trying to get the episodes out on time that I've been cutting the intro short, and because of that, I haven't given proper thanks and recognition to some of the new voice actors who've joined the cast. The cast list for each episode are always in the show notes, but I wanted to also introduce our newcomers in audio. In episode 27, the train announcer was played by Emma Rawlin. Episode 28 saw guest appearances from Edmund Boys as Mackie, Kevin Batchelder as the surly night manager, and a special appearance by Chris Miller of The Secret Lair as Egan Hunter. In this episode, we'll see the return of J.C. Hutchins as William Westerson. Lastly, this episode features the debut of my friend Mark Bailey of Grailwolf's Geek Life, in a role that you'll be seeing more of in future chapters. Lastly, I want to give a special thanks to my faithful editor, Paulette Jackson. She worked her butt off to help me get this episode finished on time, and the only reason you're hearing this episode today at all is because of the long hours that she put in on Friday night to make sure it was ready for action. Be sure to check out her own show, Form Letter Rejection Theater, at flrtpodcast.com. Thanks, Paulette. You rock. Now then, without further ado, here is Chapter 21 of Making the Cut. Here to introduce it is one of Metamore City's long-standing supporters, Michael Spence. Hello, fellow Metamorphs. This is Michael Spence, co-author of Daughter of Heaven in the brand new fantasy anthology Sword and Sorceress 23, edited by Elizabeth Waters, just out from Norlana Books, and just in time for gift-giving, or treating yourself. I am honored today to bring you the story so far. Miriam Bakhtavar, the deputy headmistress of Westfall Academy and an elder of the Psy Collective, has been working to locate Abby Preston, a 15-year-old girl and one of the most powerful telepaths ever to come under her care. Abby was seduced by Victor Hincavos, a former military operative and combat instructor for the Psy Collective, rejected as a breeding cell husband because of his aggressive and antisocial tendencies. Victor took his genetic posterity into his own hands, spiriting Abby away from Westfall and the Collective's control. Miriam has sent agents to find Victor and Abby, driving them ever deeper into the lower levels of Metamore City. Victor responded by capturing and interrogating one of these agents, hoping to find out which of the elders was behind the pursuit. Now that Abby has informed Victor that she is pregnant with his child, he is even more determined to put a stop to Miriam's manhunt permanently. Meanwhile, Daniel, Rebecca, and Sasha went to see Artax, the master wizard who runs the Spells for You magic shop. 
They hope that Artax can find a cure for the mental conditioning that has taken hold of Daniel's female alter ego, Danny. Artax doesn't have any answers yet, but he has provided a room for Daniel in the sanctuary, a small containment center that he uses to treat out-of-control mages and their victims. Here, Danny will be shielded from all forms of magical and psionic detection, which will keep her away from Jared Tamlin until they find out whether the changes he made to her soul can be reversed. While Daniel is grateful for Artax's help, though, they expect that Danny will be anything but a willing patient. After Daniel says his goodbyes to Rebecca, Artax closes and seals the door to the room just minutes before Danny's personality comes back to the surface. Chapter 21 Danny pounded on the heavy steel door, seething with rage. It didn't even budge against the long bolts that held it in place. The door must have been insulated, too. The quiet thump of her hands against the metal would never be heard in Artax's warehouse, much less in the shop outside. She was completely at his mercy, cut off from help, cut off from hope, cut off from Jared. Artax! Open this door, you fucking bastard! Let me out! I'm not crazy, you hear me? I'm not crazy! She wheeled around, scanning the room wildly for something to break down the door. She grabbed the wooden chair that sat in front of the desk and dragged it over, then picked it up by the seat back and swung it against the door. It made a satisfying thunk as it hit, but the door still didn't budge. The tiny part of her mind that was still holding on to rational thought said that it wouldn't do any good, that the door was far too strong to break down. Danny ignored it. She was past rationality. She wanted to hit something. She swung the chair again and again, putting all of her considerable strength behind the blows. Let me out! She shouted, striking the door with each word. Let me out! The chair cracked and split and finally shattered, the legs flying off across the room as the seat cushion fell at her feet. She threw the now-useless seat back across the room, knocking the phone off the nightstand table. Grabbing one of the chair legs, she swung it like a club, smashing one of the bedside lamps. How do you like that, asshole? She snarled, looking up at one of the closed-circuit cameras. You ready to open the door yet? She stalked over to the other side of the bed and smashed the lamp on that side. How about now? She went to the television and smashed in the screen. How about now? She grabbed pictures off the walls and threw them across the room, but the glass was actually transparent plastic, and they did not shatter as she had hoped. She turned over the desk, tore the hangers off the coat rack in the closet, pulled out the dresser drawers and swung them at the door until they fell to pieces. She went to the bathroom and pulled the ceramic lid off the toilet tank. She smashed the shower head, then turned and shattered the bathroom mirror. The lid broke in half as it hit the concrete wall behind the mirror, and she threw the remaining half into the shower stall. Through it all, she screamed, calling down curses on Artax, Sasha, and everyone else who had taken part in this fucking conspiracy to separate her from Jared. Jared. Oh, God. I've lost him. I've lost him! She staggered back into the bedroom and collapsed, rage giving way to grief. They'd locked her away where Jared would never find her. 
They'd taken her from the only person who loved her, the only person who gave a damn what happened to her. She could grab one of those shards of mirror and slit her wrists, and the only reason they'd care is because Daniel would die with her. Daniel, you stupid fuck! You ruined everything! I was going to be happy! Why couldn't you just go away? She looked down at her hands. She'd had a ring, the ring Catherine had left for her, but now it was gone. Daniel had taken everything and left her alone. Alone again. Jared! She sobbed, pounding on the floor with her fist. She put all of her feeble telepathic power behind her words, straining to reach the man she loved more than life itself. Save me, Jared, please. Oh, gods, save me! But Jared would not hear her. She was alone, hidden from spells and sigh alike, trapped in a prison she would never escape, a prison she was sure she would die in, alone again, forever. Sasha turned away from the monitors and closed her eyes, unable to watch anymore. She felt like she was going to be sick. Artax stood beside her, still watching the screens with a furrowed brow and sharp, analytical eyes. Rebecca huddled in the corner of the room with her eyes fixed on the nearest monitor, unable to come close and unable to look away. Her golden tan face had turned almost as pale as Sasha's. I guess this means that it's permanent, huh? The wizard stroked his beard thoughtfully. Not necessarily. Obviously, the conditioning is persistent, since she didn't return to normal after being shut inside, but it may still fade with continued isolation. We'll need to give her a few days at least before we can judge whether it's permanent. He looked over at her and quirked an eyebrow. Believe it or not, this is good news. If the conditioning required a constant connection to Jared, that would mean that he has enough range to maintain his influence across half the city. No. At this point, I'm inclined to believe that his talent is strictly limited to influencing those in close personal proximity to himself. The more time a person spends in his company, the more that influence is reinforced. A chill ran down Sasha's spine. Do you think he could use his power through a mind link? Artax cocked his head. It's possible, but Jared is a very weak telepath. He needs physical contact to open a mind link. At that range... The question becomes academic. Sasha nodded, feeling immensely grateful that Jared was one of the telepathic have-nots. She shuddered to imagine what he could do if he'd been a level nine like herself. She glanced back at the monitor. Danny was still there on the floor, weeping. It was so eerie to know that she was just three doors away and yet be completely unable to sense her. She felt disconnected like she was watching a computer simulation of a woman crying instead of seeing a real person in pain. Normally, the sight of a person suffering moved her to action, made her want to do something to help them. Here, she just wanted to turn it off, to make the strange not-person on the screen stop sobbing and wailing for her lover to come save her. It all looked real and sounded real, but it didn't feel real. It felt like a very disturbing game that someone had taken way too far and she wanted it to go away. But she knew that Danny was real, and that made her feel guilty. Dear Eli, how do the Mundys do it? How can they be capable of compassion and empathy when they can't even feel the suffering of the people around them? She had a new appreciation for her own power, 
and a new sense of pity for the poor souls who struggled through their whole lives with their minds and hearts blinded to the thoughts and emotions of their neighbors. The fact that any of them managed to become good, kind, and caring people, in spite of their handicap, was a miracle of the highest order. Artax put a gentle hand on her shoulder. Danny needs some time to calm down before we'll be able to do anything productive with her. Why don't you two take a break and come back after dinner? Sasha managed a feeble smile. That sounds like a really good idea. She reached out and took Rebecca's hand. Come on, Becca, let's go. Rebecca pulled her hand away. No, I'm not leaving. Bex, Daniel's not coming out for another twelve hours. You can't do anything for him. Rebecca glared up at her. The expression was shocking on her gentle face. Danny needs to know that I care about her, too. She's going to want to talk to me sooner or later, even if it's just to yell at me. I'm not going to leave her here alone. Sasha looked into her eyes a moment longer, then nodded. All right. I'll bring you some dinner when I come back. Bring some for Danny, too. Sasha blushed. Of course. She looked over at Artax, but he waved a hand dismissively. (sighs) Don't worry about me. I'll just go up to my kitchen and whip something up. It may surprise you, but alchemy and cooking really have a great deal in common. Sasha smirked. I guess they would. She glanced at the monitor and winced. Sorry that she made such a mess in there. Artax chuckled, though the mirth didn't reach his eyes. (laughs) She wasn't the first. Don't worry. Everything in the room is covered by a persistence enchantment. In a few hours, it will all put itself back together again. Remind me to get that enchantment from you once we have a toddler in the house. She reached down and kissed Rebecca's cheek. I'll be back soon, love. Rebecca hardly seemed to notice. She was still watching the screen. Sasha entered the apartment, dropped her purse on the counter, and flopped down onto the couch, sighing. She closed her eyes and tried to banish the image of Danny sobbing on the floor of her cell. Fiona didn't make a sound as she approached, but Sasha felt the cool, steady current of her thoughts brushing against her mind. I take it that Danny's prognosis is less than optimistic. Sasha looked up as her lover perched on the armrest next to her head. I don't know what to do, Fee. The despair she had been warring with during the drive home was evident in her voice. She sent Fiona the memory of Danny's breakdown and the subsequent conversation with Artax. I was trained to pry into people's minds, to find the things they didn't want us to know. It's been a year since I went civvy, and sometimes I still feel like all I know how to do is interrogation and psychic safe-cracking. I'm not even sure where to start with something like this. Fiona ran her fingers through Sasha's short blonde hair. Perhaps you should begin by confronting her with the things that she does not want herself to know. Sasha sat up and stared at her. Fiona shrugged, unruffled. Danny has been operating on the false assumption that Daniel was her old identity, rather than an alternate aspect of her present identity. She has been denying a part of herself, and defining her current identity entirely in terms of one narrow aspect of her life, her relationship with Jared Tamlin. If you can make her aware of the barrenness of her current emotional state, it may help her to realize the need to change. 
It took Sasha a few seconds to find her voice. Yeah, no, I saw what you were getting at. And it makes perfect sense. I'm just... trying to figure out where you came up with it. She smiled wryly. No offense, love, but emotional analysis? Not usually your strong suit. Fiona looked away, the muscles around her eyes tightening slightly. I know. In this case, I must admit that I was drawing on recent personal experience. Sasha winced. Damn it. Nice going, Sasha. So distracted by Danny's problem that you completely forgot about fees. She sat up on the couch and made a spot for Fiona. Sorry. I've got time to start working with you, if you're ready. Fiona slid gracefully down to the seat and took Sasha's hand. The corner of her lip turned up in a rueful expression. I may never be ready, but problems rarely resolve themselves if we ignore them. She looked down at their joined hands and then back up at Sasha. When she spoke again, her voice had softened. What do you need me to do? In answer, Sasha opened up the link between them. Just lie back, relax, and open up as much as you can. I'm going to have a look around in your subconscious. Let's see if we can figure out what's behind those walls. Fiona nodded and lay back, closing her eyes. Focusing all her attention on her power, Sasha dove down into Fiona's mind, beneath the calm, steady surface thoughts and into the currents beneath. Sasha knew Fiona better than anyone, so she wasn't surprised at the intensity of the emotions that swirled under her calm exterior. She saw Fiona's concern for the safety and stability of their family, the struggle between her loyalty to the Hive and her anger at its recent decisions, her fierce love for the unborn child growing inside Rebecca, the jealousy she fought to control as she saw how much of Rebecca's heart still belonged to Daniel, an outsider, and the guilt she felt for labeling Daniel an outsider when he had once been a central part of their circle of friends. These and a hundred other emotions roiled and stirred inside Fiona, kept safely below the surface by cold logic and Fiona's iron self-discipline. These were all feelings that she had acknowledged within herself and relegated to their proper places. She did not hesitate to share them with Sasha and the others when they entered Gestalt. Because she understood them, they did not control her. The true source of Fiona's inner conflict, her fear of being powerless, that was something that lay deeper. She didn't understand it, and she had only recently even been able to acknowledge it. That was what Sasha needed to help her uncover. Sasha dove deeper, past the swirling currents of emotion and into the lightless depths of Fiona's subconscious. Memories floated past her like glowing jellyfish, some of them solitary and disconnected, others moving in schools that were driven along by specific currents of thought. Sasha studied them as they went by, seeing images of Fiona's life that danced inside their gelatinous forms. It was the solitary memories that interested Sasha the most. On the whole, Fiona's mind was an orderly place. She knew why she did what she did, and she had good reasons for doing it. One of the things that made her so extraordinary within the Psy Collective was her ability to look at situations objectively, and then act on a logical basis. Even when her emotions were informing her decision, she considered their input as only one piece of the larger puzzle. For these memories to be disconnected from any of the obvious currents, they had to be driven by something more subtle, something deeper. Sasha reached out to some of these disconnected memories, examining them in more detail. 
A familiar-looking wizard handed Fiona an exquisitely carved amulet. This is our premium model, guaranteed 100% effective in all circumstances, even against incubi and fertility potions. Under more mundane circumstances, it's rated for a minimum of ten years. Fiona and Brian conferred in secret in a storage room at their old MID base. Are you sure? You have seniority, you know. Technically, you should be the one to have the first child. Fiona crossed her arms. I am familiar with the custom, but Rebecca has wanted a child for years. It would help her to integrate into the family if she were the first to conceive. She did not tell Brian the real reason for deferring to Rebecca. Above all else, she knew that she must not become helpless. Fiona gazed in silent horror at the scene in front of her. This wasn't just the drug lord's headquarters. It was a harem. Two dozen women from all over the world stood watching her, glassy-eyed and barefoot, enchanted mind-control collars latched firmly around their necks. She spun on her heel and walked back to the office where she had left the drug lord handcuffed and tied to his own chair. She raised her gun and fired, striking him in the groin. He shrieked and screamed, wailing like the pig he was. She shifted to a different vantage point and shot him again, this time in the throat. The bullet destroyed his larynx while leaving his spinal cord untouched. He hissed and sputtered and gurgled as he died. After he stopped moving, she untied him. She took a gun off the body of a guard and pressed it into his hand. Putting his finger on the trigger, she squeezed off three rounds into the bookcases at the far end of the room. She would tell the others that he died resisting capture. Sasha forced back her own nausea and tried to look for the overall pattern. All of these events had been driven by the same motive, a motive so deep that Fiona could not explain them even to herself. In her mind's eye, Sasha perceived it as a deep ocean current, an upwelling from the abyss of Fiona's subconscious mind. It was slow, cold, and inexorable. Though almost unnoticeable by itself, it shaped all of the faster currents above it. These memories, though, were driven by it alone. Sasha went deeper. The water here was freezing, the pressure almost unbearable. This part of Fiona's mind did not give up its secrets easily. She came to the lip of a vast chasm, a jagged tear in Fiona's psyche that she had submerged under countless layers of conscious and subconscious thought. The upwelling rose out of that chasm, driving before it the small, glowing lights of those scattered memories. Sasha looked over the edge and saw the faint glow of a light far below her. That's the source. A voice boomed through the water, assaulting her ears. No, we cannot go down there. Sasha looked around in alarm. She was far below the level of Fiona's conscious thoughts. If Fiona were trying to speak to her, the voice would be more distant. This seemed to come from the chasm itself. I need to go down there. That's where the answers are, Fee. Look at the size of this chasm. This sort of pain doesn't happen without a reason. You must not go down there. I will not allow it. Sasha smiled apologetically. I'm sorry, Fee, but you asked me to do this. I love you too much to let you back out now. You'll thank me when this is over, I promise. She moved past the ledge and dove into the darkness. 
something was waiting for her. A tentacle snaked out from below and wrapped itself around her throat. Suddenly, the imagery of the ocean was more than a metaphor. Sasha felt the creature's grip around her neck, and she found herself unable to breathe. A dark form rose out of the abyss, its body pale and ghostly against the dark water around it. An eye the size of a dinner plate regarded her with cold alien hostility, while its arms drew her closer to its snapping maw. Panicking, Sasha struck out with a mind blast, but the creature was deeper than conscious thought, as deep and old as instinct, and her telepathic attacks did little damage to something so primal. She reached out and sent a beam of thought up toward Fiona's conscious mind, imagining it as a grappling line being fired from a spear gun. A single thought propelled it to the surface. Help me! For a long, terrifying moment, Sasha hung there in the darkness, gasping for air that she couldn't see, while the creature relentlessly tightened its hold. Sasha's vision began to go dark, but just then something grabbed the lifeline and pulled her upwards. Abruptly, Sasha found herself back in her own body. She was lying on her back on the couch, Fiona on top of her. Fiona's hand was around her throat, looser now but still pinning her down. Fee? Sasha gasped. Fiona sat back on her heels, her face as white as a sheet. She looked down at her hand in astonishment, as if it belonged to someone else. She looked back up, her jaw slack. Her brow broke out in a cold sweat. Sasha? Her voice sounded very small. What? What just happened? Sasha tried to speak, coughed, then sat up before trying again. I think that it's going to take a while to get through those defenses of yours. The pre-recorded message played for the fifth time that morning. Egan's voice, curt and businesslike, followed by a beep. Miriam rang off and looked down at the telephone, frowning. After a moment's consideration, she dialed another number. Yes, Elder? Peter, have you heard from Agent Hunter in the last 12 hours? I'm afraid not, ma'am. Why do you ask? He left a message on my phone last night. Apparently he found a lead on Victor and Abby's whereabouts and was following up on it. I've been trying to reach him all morning, but it keeps putting me into voicemail. Now that's... odd. Eakin's usually pretty meticulous about checking in. Agreed. Miriam looked out the window of her fifth-level apartment, watching the streams of skimmer traffic flowing past on the skyways below. Her brow furrowed as she considered her options. Egan Hunter's uncharacteristic silence put her in a difficult position. If he had gotten into trouble and lost his phone, then it was likely that he was on the right track in his pursuit of Victor. Miriam would have to send in backup, and quickly, or they would risk losing the trail entirely. On the other hand, it was possible Egan had gone silent because he needed to be stealthy. Perhaps Victor was on the move, and Egan was following him. If so, sending in an operations team might alert Victor to Egan's presence and cause him to go to ground. She sighed. They weren't going to get anywhere by being timid, but a modicum of caution was still in order. 
All right, put together a team of teeps and espers and have them scout Agent Hunter's last known location. Tell them to converge to a block away and try to contact him telepathically. If that doesn't work, have the espers scan the area before moving in. Your first priority is finding Agent Hunter. We need to know what he knows. Understood. Don't worry, ma'am. We'll find him. Be careful. If Victor discovers that we're following him, he's likely to take the offensive. Tell our operatives to assume that he is hostile and extremely dangerous. They should be prepared to use deadly force. There was a pause on the other end of the line. Uh, but Elder Bakhtavar, Victor may have retired from the Collective, but he's still one of us. Miriam winced. She hadn't told Peter yet about what she had learned from Callie Linder, how Victor had murdered Del Matthews and Trace Mbarra and pinned the blame on Philippe Devereaux. That wasn't information that she wanted to become common knowledge, not until Victor was dead or in custody. If it came out, the Hive would demand to know why Miriam had been unable to spot his deception, and she didn't have an answer to that. Her elder status might be revoked for her apparent incompetence, and then she would be powerless to help Abby. He's a rogue, Peter. I can't give you the details right now, but trust me, Victor is no longer one of us. If the opportunity presents itself, kill him. Don't give him a second chance. Uh, understood, ma'am. Peter out. Miriam rang off and put the phone in her pocket. She found herself pacing the floor, looking up at the ceiling, staring at the walls. She pulled out the phone and dialed Egan's number again. Blast it all, Egan. What's happened to you? Victor looked down at the caller ID on Egan Hunter's phone and smiled. He silenced the call, then pulled out his own phone and dialed the number. Yes? Good afternoon, Mr. Westerson. I hope I haven't awakened you too early. Only if you intend to waste my time, Victor. What do you want? Oh, it's not what I want, it's what you want. As I hear it, you've been looking for the mastermind behind certain operations that have caused great embarrassment to you and your employer. Victor grinned. I can give her to you. William Westerson only hesitated an instant. How? Here, take down this number. Victor read off the phone number on Egan's caller ID. She's been using that phone to try and contact one of her operatives. She'll keep it with her in case he calls back. Trace the signal, corner her when she's vulnerable, and she's yours. Westerson made a sound deep in his throat something disturbingly close to a purr. Excellent. Well done, Victor. Thank you, Mr. Westerson. I should give you fair warning. This target is the complete package. Brains, beauty, and power all rolled into one. She won't go quiet, and she won't go easy. That will make the hunt all the sweeter. Tell me about this target. What are her habits? What are her strengths? Her weaknesses? Where shall we have the best chance of running her to ground? Victor smiled as he tossed Egan's phone into a nearby trash bin. I'll tell you all that and more. We'll be back with more of the Metamore City podcast right after these messages.
You've chased the bard and been caught in the weaver's web. You've heard her voice whispering from the edge of Moravi and echoing through the levels of Metamore City. But if you think you know Philippa Ballantyne, think again. From the front lines of World War II to the farthest reaches of space, the author of Digital Magic brings you the most basic force in the universe. Sex. Made to order. Every month, you pick the ingredients. And the Kiwi Temptress mixes up your order and then spices it hot. And I mean hot. This podcast is so hot, iTunes banned it after one episode. Philippa Ballantyne presents Erotica on the Comet. Subscribe today at www.eroticahelicart.com and start listening tonight. May 25th, 2008. The nightmare began. Attention, T. Morris. Your Kraken's jersey has been kidnapped. We will contact you with further instructions. This summer, the chase is on. I'm T. Morris, and this is Kraken's Quest. Join me in this interactive Web 2.0 adventure at tmorris.com. Click on the Kraken's Quest banner and follow me through my challenges put forth by Kraken Thief. And provided I pass the test, no matter how mind-bending, abstract, physically demanding, or just plain weird that they'll be, maybe, just maybe, I will get my jersey back in time for Dragon Con. Welcome to Kraken Quest. Please, don't harm my jersey. Hi, this is Philippa Ballantyne from Whispers at the Edge and also Moravi Remastered, and you're listening to Metamore City. Thank you very much, Pip. And that is all that we've got time for this week, folks. I am putting this together the day that it's supposed to come out. So obviously, yeah, my Thanksgiving vacation didn't really help me get caught up all that much. But again, thank you so much to Paulette Jackson for helping to make sure that it came together at all. And this is only chapter 21, part A. You guys will get part B next time. Um, hoping that I might be able to get that to you next week, but no promises. At the least, I've got you a good-sized episode here that uh, is on time. Now let's get to some feedback. Hey there, this is Kimmy from TaleTasting.com. I wanted to be one of the first ones to call in on the new number, so hi, how you doing? Um, I just wanted to say that Metamore City rocks my socks, so keep it up and talk to you later. Bye. Well, thank you very much, Kimmy. And yes, as she said, we have a new voicemail line. I discovered this the night that the last episode came out, after it already came out, and I had already recorded and everything. Uh, but yeah, my old voicemail line died because no one was calling it. So, we've got a new one. Uh, the new number is 206-203-0994. That's 206 206- 203-0994. And we did get one other call on that new line, and that is Nobilis. Hey Chris, this is Nobilis calling. 
I'm just uh, responding to uh, to more of the fact of T. Morris's feedback there rather than the actual content. Um, considering how rarely that man leaves feedback on anything, you should take it as a high compliment that he <laughs> that he even that he called it all, and that the fact that he was so emotionally invested in the characters is a huge compliment to your ability as a storyteller. Um, you know from my, my frequent feedback to you that uh, I'm hugely invested in this story, and I felt very similarly to him that uh, that uh, I felt like the hive really had turned their back on Dan, and. Uh, and so when he went off with Jared, um, my thought was, oh, well, I guess the story's over. <laughs> Everybody lives happily ever after in their individual situations. Um, because, uh, you know, true love doesn't always win out in the end. And I would have thought it an interesting story if that had been where it goes. As for the uh, people changing rapidly, um, it can seem... The reason I thought that it was reasonable for uh, Danny to go with Jared was that, uh, you know, on the rebound, people can change radically. And if, some, you know, if, if a person who's part of your life to the point that it's almost like having a limb removed when they're gone, um, yeah, that changes you pretty drastically right there. Uh, I don't think, if it weren't for our tax confirming it, really something excuse me that something uh, really radical had gone on um, I would have I would have considered it completely rational for our tax to have said oh, nope she just kind of changed her mind and that's who she is now so anyways uh, yeah, there's a minor flaw there. Happens to the best of us, especially when we're kind of writing things as we're going along. <laughs> Been there, done that. In fact, am there doing that. Anyways, take care, bye. Hey, thanks for calling in, Nobelis. And uh, get that cough looked at, okay, buddy? Sounds like uh, that was pretty nasty there. Anyway, um, yes, the whole issue with not having established the continuity of relationship between Daniel and Rebecca and the rest of the summer cell. Um, that was a flaw, and I'm currently working on plans to go back and add a portion to probably chapter two, uh, dealing with that whole situation. So you can expect to see that in the final, final version of this uh, novel that when it goes up on patio books. But uh, for now, I'm going to keep going because that's what i got to do and uh, just deal with the corrections that need to be made afterwards. I've always seen making the cut as a bit of a work in progress and uh, yeah, so that's where we're at. If you guys would like to leave your own feedback, you can call that new voicemail line. Again, that is 206-203-0994. You can also email at feedback at metamorecity.com. We accept both text messages and audio files attached to the messages. 
Or you can post on the blog at metamorecity.com or join the discussion forums over at thecursed.org. And if you'd like to support the show, you can leave a review for us on iTunes. We've had several new people write in and post their reviews there in the last few weeks. So thank you very much for those contributions, guys. Let's keep it going. Hopefully we can get to the point where we are actually challenging Murder at Avedon Hill and Moravi for their places in the rankings again, which has not happened for a while now. They're actually on page two, and we're still stuck on page three. So let's get to it, Metamorphs, and make sure that we can help other people to find out about the show. That'll do it for this episode. For those of you in the United States, I hope you had a lovely Thanksgiving. For everyone else, hope that you enjoyed the week in spite of not having the day off on Thursday. And I will talk to you guys in two weeks, if not sooner. Again, I'm going to try to get the second half of Chapter 21 out to you guys next week, but no promises. So, until next time, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Additional music was provided by Shiva in Exile through Magnatune.com. Magnatune.com, they are not evil. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at SoundSnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org. Meanwhile, Daniel, Rebecca, and Sasha went to see Artax, the master wizard who runs the Spells for You magic shop. He got the signed special liquidation rate from Spells R Us and just had to slice off a couple of pieces. Oh, she's off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard so grand. She hears he is a bit of a lech, but she's got her mace at hand. Artax doesn't have any answers yet, but he has provided a room for Daniel in the Sanctuary, a small containment center that he uses to treat out-of-control mages and their victims. He also rents it out by the hour, beverage service extra. It's possible, but Jared is a very weak telepath. He needs physip... physipal. Physipal? Yes. It, you don't understand about physicality? We can monitor th- We can monitor her through closed circuit ta- We can monitor her through closed circuit You know what? No, no. Sorry, but Artax has just switched over to Dresden Rules. The closed circuit TV cameras don't work because of all the magic flying around. You're going to have to figure out something else in your story, Mr. Nestor. <laughs> I thought it was the monitor her that was keeping you tripped up. Well, monitoring through the damn cameras. That's what's not working, all right? So deal with it. (laughs) Where the hell am I? (laughs) I'm afraid not, ma'am. Why do you ask? Okay, I've killed that line. Ugh. Brian and Fiona and Brian conferred in secret in a storage room at their old MID base. All right, did you bring the cookies?
blink, blink. <laughs> How can we have a secret meeting without cookies? <laughs> We're not Lutherans. <laughs> well, we could be. I'll go nail something to a door. What about then? Will we be Lutherans then? <laughs> Notice this time, folks, that he's the one cracking up. It's because I am amazed at my own comedic genius. Genius! Brilliant! Brilliant! Okay, you have no lines there. All right. Oh, man, I was hoping to do a line or two. All right, and here you get to do both Artax and Brian on the same page. Please! I hit the right button, right? You did. Okay, good. Fabulous. That's fabulous! I can do that again if you really want. Um, no need. <laughs> sure? I think once is enough. Do we have to? So let's do it. Let's do it. Let us do that which is it. For if we do not do it, it shall not be done. For it will do us. He gads. Let's do it. All right. Okay.